Hello, welcome to Nature Mono, an environmental humanities podcast. I'm your host, John L. Pitt. This is episode five of season one, Oceanic Japan. My guest for this episode is Daryl Maud, PhD candidate in the Department of East Asian Languages and Cultures at the University of California, Berkeley. Maud's research examines notions of intimacy and futurity in the works of Okinawan and queer writers. Maud is also a translator. His translations of Okinawan poet Yamano Kuchibaku have appeared in the journal Transference, and his translation of critic Shinjo Ikuo's essay, Male Sexuality in the Colony, on Toyokawa Zenichi's Searchlight, is included in the collected volume Beyond Imperial Aesthetics, Theories of Art and Politics in East Asia, which is available via Hong Kong University Press. While making this season of the podcast, I have thought often of a conference paper Maud presented several years back on the oceanic poetics of Okinawan writer Takara Ben. I invited Maud to join me on this episode to discuss this paper and its rich ideas, as well as to discuss how the ocean factors into his work more generally, and how it factors into the literature and visual imaginaries of Okinawa even more generally. I also asked if he could read his translation of Takara Ben's poem, Cebu Sea, which serves as the basis of Maud's discussion of Takara Ben's oceanic poetics. Please enjoy Maud's reading of his translation of Takara Ben's Cebu Sea, followed by our conversation. Cebu Sea by Takara Ben How many days has it been? Days seeing only drab buildings and mountain ranges which block the horizon. My thirst at the soft breasts and firm split peach bottoms slowly taking hold of my throat. And even so, I'm madly in love with the ocean. That old smell of the roaring of the waves, the shining sun breaking open my head. Oh, my first sight in the Philippines of the ocean. Fantasies of going back home to the bosom of my mother, no, to my wife's petals, the center of her flower, one step at a time, slowly entering between the folds of the water, becoming a boneless jellyfish and drifting. This is the island of Cebu. Blue, yellow, green, indigo, an ocean of many blues, on the horizon are so many Uruma coral islands, palm groves sinking, floating up between the waves. If I float in the water like this, the flowing blood of this ocean will wash the beaches of the islands called Okinawa, Japan. The ocean currents cross every border. The shoals of jumping fish my daughter, without your father, have you become a jellyfish floating in your home, the ocean? Huge cumulonimbus clouds are rising and maybe a violent squall is getting closer. Well then, time to go. And now, for how many more days will I be able to bear it silently? In the middle of the crowds of the metropolis, where I can't see the ocean. Well, Daryl, I want to thank you so much for joining me today and um, give you a special thank you for, for reading your translation of Takara Ben's uh, poem. It was very lovely. And I first heard this poem um, when you presented it uh, and presented on it in 2016, right, at the Critical Asian Studies Conference in Sao Paulo, Brazil, um, where you and I shared a panel with uh, Professor Dan O'Neill. And so, you know, at that time, I, I found your reading of the poem, and by that, I mean both, you know, the translation that you rendered of the poem and your interpretation of it, 
um, it was just so so moving and so striking um, that it really stuck with me. And so when I decided I wanted to focus on this theme of Oceanic Japan for this season of the podcast, um, I knew I really wanted to talk with you about this uh, conference paper. And so I'm hoping you uh, might be able to share for our listeners, you know, kind of the broad strokes of the paper and the main argument. Yeah, sure. Uh, well, thanks so much for having me, John. Um, so I was, um, I had been working on uh, Takara's writings, uh, his poetry, and also his criticism for a little while. And I was also thinking a lot about precarity and um, especially precarity after um, the Fukushima disaster. Um, and I was also thinking about um, comparisons between Okinawa and Fukushima that I'd heard or between um, other spaces of disaster. So basically what I, I do in that um, the paper is I read Takara Ben's writing, both his, uh, his political writing uh, and his poetry, his poetic writing, his poetry. And I try and think about what it means to be um, in relation to one another um, and what it means to compare um, two different spaces or what, what the problems of this um, comparison could be, what they are and what the advantages of it are as well. And I'd heard um, a lot of comparisons between uh, Fukushima and Okinawa, um, especially the work of the, the philosopher Takahashi Tetsuyo. Um, and also I'd um, been thinking about the idea of uh, catastrophic relations. So here I'm thinking about Jean-Luc Nancy, the, the philosopher, um, and he wrote a, a short book on Fukushima. Um, and in this, he says, uh, uh, catastrophes are not all the same gravity but they all connect with the totality of interdependences that make up general equivalence. Um, so I read that and I was trying to think about what that meant and I, I got very frustrated um, at, um, at the way Nancy was writing about Fukushima mm -hmm. um, because it seems, seemed to me to be so kind of abstracted mm. um, and so removed from, from suffering and from human life. So um, so I was thinking about Takara Ben and I was thinking about disaster and Nancy and Fukushima and I kind of brought them together in this paper. So I basically argue that Takara is responding to various thinkers who try and bring Okinawa into a relationship with Japan, um, but he's also trying to think about connection and forging links and connections that um, that don't reduce things to pure comparison. And I argue that he does this through his poetics and I call these his, his oceanic poetics. Great, yeah. And I, I, I wanted to focus in a little bit on this idea of um, an oceanic poetics, such a great image. Um, and, you know, throughout this paper, you're saying that Takata Ben's poetics are oceanic, but it's not just in the content, although certainly that's there as well, right? But also at the level of the, the form of his poetry. Can you kind of explain how that works? Um, you know, I'm thinking about how in your discussion, you talk about the way Takata Ben, you know, negotiates between different, um, different scripts of the Japanese language, right? And how this kind of relates to this play between the familiar and the unfamiliar. And, and that is somehow connected to this negotiation, this connection between Japan and Okinawa that you were talking about. Right, so, so the main conceit of the poem is, is um, the, the narrator is looking out on the ocean um, while he's, in, he's on the island of Cebu in the Philippines and he feels a connection like through the ocean to his home um, of Okinawa. And the ocean feels like home in this foreign place. So mm -hmm. he's, he's talking about being in the metropolis and he's very confused and he sees the ocean and the ocean is this, um, this very familiar thing that you could float through and you could be connected uh, through that movement to Okinawa or to Japan or all these other places. Um, and the, the use of script that you mentioned uh, in the poem, he uses katakana, which is the Japanese 
um, phonetic syllabary that is used to to render foreign words usually to render loan words. So um, Takara uses uh, katakana to write Okinawa, and he uses katakana to write uh, Japan. So not Nihon no Nippon, the, the native Japanese words for Japan, but Japan. Mm. Um, so he's, what I argue is that in doing these, in rendering these words in katakana rather than in kanji or hiragana, um, he is making these spaces all equally foreign. So Cebu is foreign um, and it's written in katakana, so is Okinawa, so is Japan. Um, and he also does this with another word. He he has the Okinawan word Uruma, which means, um, which is the name of a city in, in um, Okinawa main island, but is um, uh, he uses it to mean coral, coral island. Hmm. Um, so he, he has Uruma, Jima. So Uruma is in Katakana and then Jima, Shima is uh, the kanji for island. Hmm. And then afterwards in parentheses, he um, writes Sangojima, so coral island. Um, so this is something that happens a lot in, in Okinawan literature. There's always a, a problem of how do you render Okinawan language? Um, do you write it in kanji, in Chinese characters, and then you add the marks to show it's supposed to be pronounced in a non-standard way? Or do you just write it in, in hiragana or katakana and then afterwards explain what it means? Or do you just not explain what it means? Um, and so these are all questions of like how difficult these influence the questions of how difficult the text is or, or how kind of accessible it is to the reader. Mm-hmm. Um, so these are all questions of, especially in, in prose fiction, these are questions that get raised a lot and like how, how accessible is this text to uh, a reader who doesn't, isn't familiar with Okinawan languages, for example. So, uh, so these are all sort of um, like strategies that he could play with. I imagine as someone who, who translates this work, it, it is a bit of a challenge as well. Yes, yeah, it's, <laughs> it, it's so the, with this one, I translated it as um, Uruma and then Coral Island. So I just had the phrase flow into each other. I just said Uruma Coral Islands. Mm-hmm. Um, but there, it's really difficult, um, to kind of render it elegantly sometimes because in, in English, because we don't have, I I suppose you could, um, you could write the Okinawan in Romanized form and then put the meaning above it in some kind of approximation of, um, Japanese, but that it becomes kind of gimmicky pretty quickly, I think, in English, and it's it it takes the reader out of the reading experience. So right. um, it's it's always a challenge, and I'm always interested to see how um, other translators deal with uh, non-standard Japanese. So there's this really um, great line that sticks out to me as I read through um, this this conference paper. And I I think you're talking both about Takara Ben's poetry, but also his political writing here. Um, You can correct me if I'm wrong, but you say, quote, conceiving of Okinawa as a transnational Pacific space is the powerful liquid core of Takara's thought, end quote. So, um, you know, this is something that I've been trying to explore throughout the season of the podcast, right, is, is this idea of the transnational Pacific space. Um, so how does Takara Ben present Okinawa uh, in this way? And what do you think are some of the possibilities that are opened up by his doing so? Yeah, so Takara Ben writes a lot about um, the what he calls the Ryukyu arc, mm-hmm. the Ryukyu ko. Um, and this, so he's, he writes about um, Ryukyu, which is uh, another name for Okinawa, um, as this space 
in the Pacific that is kind of linked to other islands. Um, so he links it to the Philippines, he links it to um, spaces like Taiwan, other groups of islands within the Pacific, um, and even to other spaces like he, in his political writing, he talks about um, forging links with the Ainu, for example, and the Ainu homeland in the Ainu uh, Mosier in Hokkaido. Mm. So, but what the the um, the sort of genealogy of that thought is, he's responding to ideas by a lot of Japanese thinkers like Yanagita Kunio, um, who wrote about Okinawa as this kind of origin space for a lot of Japanese culture. Right. Um, or Yoshimoto Takaaki, um, who writes a lot about the, the Southern Islands, um, or Shimao Toshio, who's a, an author and critic who writes about this very influential text called Japonesia Ron, or the theory of Japonesia, which is um, Japanesia, right? So the idea that Japan is not, um, shouldn't be primarily connected with Asia, but should in fact, in continental Asia, like China and Korea, but should in fact be thought of as a, a kind of Pacific space and an island or archipelago like Micronesia or like um, Polynesia. Um, so Takara Ben is kind of, talk, uh, you know, taking on these ideas, but he's, uh, instead of um, kind of having Okinawa as this other space or this originary space, he's saying, for, for something else, right? He's saying, no, actually we are our own um, space and we are our own people. So he takes this idea of Japonesia and he makes it into Ryukunesia, like Ryukunesia. Mm. Um, it's an idea that starts with the space of Okinawa. Okinawa is right in the center. Um, so for example, um, he has a, uh, a piece he writes in 1981 called Ryukunesia, a personal declaration of independence, which is this very kind of strange account of him being in a bar and being given a, a piece of paper by a man um, that has this long personal declaration of independence for Ryukunesia. It sets out this kind of utopian plan or utopian constitution for this country that it would exist and would welcome everybody, but would kind of um, be uh, be its own thing and be self-determining rather than being um, just a, a prefecture of Japan and rather than being filled with US American um, military bases. Uh, so, but also it's, it's not quite serious because he meets this person in a bar and you're, you're never quite sure kind of what the, um, what the framing kind of mm -hmm. device is, is doing to put pressure on this kind of lofty um, goal. So I think he, this is another, um, this is a way of him kind of not being quite entirely straight with us and being a little playful. Yeah a little less than um, polemical with us and saying, look, I know this is kind of hard to believe and this, this might sound like the kind of ramblings of some guy you meet in a bar one night, but actually like this is important and this is meaningful. That's fascinating, yeah. The, yeah, that framing is, is very, uh, I mean, confusing, but I, I think you're right, it, it does I mean, it's weird because it, it it almost trivializes the whole thing, but it's also yeah. very very serious. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's a very strange um, it's a very strange piece, but it's one that's really interesting too. Well, I want to um, get to what I feel like is kind of the core of um, this this paper that you've written, and it's this refrain that you return to several times uh, throughout the, the the paper, and that's the idea that now Tokyo knows what it feels like, right? And this is something you relate hearing from multiple Okinawan scholars after the March 11th, 2011 triple disaster. Um, and so you have this uh, 
passage near the end of your paper, and I'm, I'm going to quote it a little bit at length here um, because I think it's a very powerful um, and kind of like the, the 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 framing you were just talking about. Um, not not confusing, but but sort of surprising. And so I'm hoping you can elaborate it on a little bit. But this is what you write: "Quote, the Pacific is not all equally radioactive." and the damage and precarity faced by the residents of Fukushima is not the same as that of the people in Tokyo. But through the oceanic feeling proposed by Takara Ben, maybe they can feel a little of it to cross the border and imagine themselves being together with others. Now Tokyo knows what it feels like is not an absolute statement, but maybe it's a hopeful one, a point from which to progress and imagine a new type of oceanic catastrophic relation, end quote. So I'm, I'm fascinated by this um, this move that you make, right? It's a, it's a very surprising kind of uh, move at the end here, where you take this refrain that that does feel very perhaps judgmental or you know even bordering on vindictive. Um, now Tokyo knows what it feels like, right? But you propose that maybe that this is could actually be hopeful, right? This idea of an oceanic catastrophic relation. Um, how can that be hopeful? Right. So what I was, what I do in the paper is I, I really try and think about um, connection and comparison. And um, as I said, and I was like dissatisfied with this idea that all, all disasters are the same or everybody's suffering in the, in the same way. Um, and I, I had heard also heard people say things like, oh, well, you know, the Fukushima disaster is the, is the great leveler and um, the, everybody's going to sort of experience it in the same way. And, and this is a kind of, they're trying to make this into some sort of hopeful um, rhetorical move, right? Like mm -hmm. everything, we, we all suffer, we can't hide from radiation. So, okay, we, now we can kind of recognize our, our shared humanity or a shared condition so and it's a it's a really nice idea but it's also very um I was very dissatisfied with it because the effects are, are not all the same and the people in Fukushima for example are suffering much more than people in Tokyo mm -hmm. um like people without money are suffering a lot more than people with money and so on and so forth um but this phrase that I heard from a lot of Okinawan um, scholars like now Tokyo knows what it feels like um, it's really interesting it's really compelling to me and I was trying to think about what um, what they meant by it mm -hmm. and so I think for Okinawans um, there's this among a lot of people there's a sense of vulnerability uh, in Okinawa to to disaster and here disaster means um, violent crime, um, murder or sexual assault by um, US military personnel, or it means um, a helicopter falling from the sky, for example, as happened in, um, uh, I think 2014, uh, no, I'm sorry, 2004, um, in onto Okinawa, International University. So there, there are these, there's a sense of, of disaster that could happen. Mm -hmm. um, and they were kind of feeling, I think, these Okinawan scholars were feeling that kind of precarity um, in Tokyo and feeling that sort of shared sense. Um, so I'm trying to think about, I mean, there, there definitely is a sense of of kind of revenge or, or satisfaction, um, like schadenfreude taking pleasure mm -hmm. in these people's um, like sense of being unsettled. Mm -hmm. um, but also I, I was trying to think about like, okay, well, what, if we take that seriously, and if we think about that seriously, um, not as like an absolute comparison, like now they know exactly how it feels because they, they don't, they can't. Mm -hmm. they're not experiencing that so they can't but 
what if we took it as something hopeful and something that could engender a sense of political alliance or engender new ways of thinking? And in the paper, I think I was trying to link this idea to the ocean and the ocean is this, this, um, this thing that links all these spaces. So like Takara Ben, who's seeing the ocean as a space of connection and he's seeing that the, the Philippine seascape that he looks out um, on could be an Okinawan seascape. There's this sort of shared sense of, of humanity there, or a shared sense of being creatures who are connected. Um, so I was trying to, um, I, I mean, this, this sort of still needs work and it still needs to think about what kind of, uh, I still need to think about what kind of form it could take or others need to think about what form it could take. But um, I was trying to end on this um, kind of hopeful gesture where we, we don't kind of collapse into, um, oh, everything's the same, but we also don't um, fall away from each other and say, everything is different and there is no connection. And... There's something about the, the oceanic and the sea, especially in, you know, once we think about literature, um, where where the ocean does become this this space of of, of hopefulness, um, and so the fact that you're able to you know bring that into this discussion, I think, is really powerful. Um, but I wanted to you know to kind of take a step back and think a little bit more disciplinarily uh, at the moment. Um, you know, so you're someone who researches and writes about authors. Um, from Okinawa, right, primarily. Mm -hmm. And so I'm, I'm really curious to hear your perspective on whether or not you think um, the ocean, right, has been taken seriously as a critical space in the way that you're employing it here in your work. Um, whether this has been the case in the field of literary studies, both in terms of, you know, Japanese literature considered more broadly, um, and then in terms of literature from Okinawa in particular, right? So. Some of my previous guests, um, you know, from different fields, history, anthropology, religious studies, uh, they've all, you know, voiced their opinions that um, the sea has been largely neglected in their fields up until quite recently. And there seems to be this kind of momentum, right, with the, the blue humanities. Um, what's your take on how that's unfolding or has up until this point in terms of literary studies? Right. Um... <laughs> So definitely, I think literary studies, and especially literary studies, as um, as as area studies, right? As Japanese literary studies, um, I think the ocean. Thinking about the ocean can present a kind of challenge to this idea of a, a bounded country, um, and I think this is, this is kind of interesting to think about. Um, like Takara Ben's work in this way, or a lot of other people's work in this way, um, and I think as a as a trend in literary scholarship, I think people are beginning to pay more attention in the field of Japanese literary studies to um, ideas of Japanese language literature, for example, and mm -hmm. thinking about the ways in which authors. Um, uh, who are a Japanese American, for example, um, who are writing in Japanese, that could be considered as Japanese language literature or someone like Tawada Yoko, who, is, um, who lives in Germany, who writes in German, but also in Japanese, her work, is her work Japanese literature? Is it German literature? Is it Japanese language literature? So there are all these kind of um, questions that I think thinking about um, thinking about the ocean, thinking about um, these sort of spaces can can trouble. Mm -hmm. um, but in terms of the ocean, like very specifically, 
I don't know. I think um, there's there's plenty of people who are who plenty of authors, literary authors, who are writing about it. Um, in Okinawa, like Matayoshi Eiki or, or Sakiyama Tami, who I write about, um, people who are writing about sort of smaller island communities and lives. And, um, and I'm thinking also about uh, like the people who are working in, for example, Taiwan or Taiwanese literary studies or people who are working in the Caribbean and thinking about Caribbean literary studies. Right. Um, but also like, I think we have a lot, um, a lot of really interesting examples in like critical race theory, for example, and um, someone like Christina Sharp's uh, In the Wake, uh, which is this really beautiful um, work in critical race theory. She's thinking about um, blackness and, and um, anti-blackness, but um, she uses this metaphor of the wake to to refer to um, the the wake of the slave ships in the Middle Passage, and but also the wake of um, of uh, guarding a body, the wake of um, being awake. Um, so she uses the multiple meanings of this word to kind of um, and the the in a very kind of oceanic way, in a very kind of broad and um, kind of flowing way mm -hmm. to, to think about um, race and to think about uh, shared vulnerability and um, the sort of the, the work of moving through a world that doesn't want you. So I think this, um, I was reminded of this because of this, um, uh, talking about the, the ending of my paper there, this kind of attempt at a, a gesture that's hopeful, but it's not um, kind of hugely optimistic, but it doesn't um, doesn't collapse back into this idea of there's nothing we can do. Um, yeah, so that was kind of a, a, a wavy and um, a roundabout way of talking about it. But I, so I think there's a lot of a lot of inspiration to be gained from other fields, basically, mm -hmm. is what I'm saying. Right, right. And do do is it your sense that some of that is making its inroads into the study of Japanese literature? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Um, I hope so, at least. Right. <laughs> well, that kind of brings me to your larger project, which I also wanted to talk about. Um, because it's it's separate from the the piece we've been discussing, but you know, it's it's connected in certain ways as well. Um, and so I'm wondering if you can give us, you know, just a kind of general overview of what your main project looks like. Um, and perhaps you can say a little bit about whether or not there is an element of the oceanic or, or the trans-Pacific um, at the core of, of your, your main project. Yeah. Um, so my main project, um, which is currently my PhD dissertation that's um, going to be a monograph at some point, hopefully, uh, it's entitled Intimate Futures, and in it I'm thinking about the way that authors in Okinawa and in Japan have um, have thought about the future. Um, and I argue, and I'm specifically looking at the post-war period and especially after um, Okinawa's reversion to Japanese control in the 1970s. So I'm thinking about how these authors thought about the future and wrote about the possibility of a future. And I'm arguing that uh, they're conceiving of the future in between two scales. So a personal scale, like romance and love and the desire for a good life. And then this big kind of global scale of uh, the Vietnam War and the Cold War and Jap J Japanese um, economic advancement and Japan is becoming a neoliberal country. And so all of these kind of, these big um, moving parts and these little moving parts and how um, the futures that these people imagine kind of appear within these, um, in between these. Um, and yes, I think there is a big kind of oceanic um, Trans-Pacific, specifically Trans-Pacific element to this, because a lot of the 
um, there is a lot of American influence um, in Okinawa and in Japan as well. Um, so my in my second chapter, for example, I talk about um, the writings of Yukio Mishima and um, Takahashi Mutsuo, who are two um, authors who often get understood as gay. And I talk a lot about the way that American gay culture and Japanese gay culture have um, been intertwined across the Pacific. And mm-hmm. um, so this, this, there's this constant travel back and forth between America and Japan and Japan and Okinawa and Okinawa and America. So I'm trying to, um, as I kind of go on with this project, I'm really trying to pay attention to that trans-Pacific movement um, and the uh, the sort of pressure that American empire exerts on that, but also the, the ways that people kind of live their lives, their daily lives through that. And so I'm curious what brought you to the study of Okinawan literature. And I'm wondering if you can say a little bit about what maybe some of your issues with that term, Okinawan literature, are. I think I've heard you express, um, you know, some some ideas in the past about why that's something of a problematic term in and of itself. Right. Um, So I, I mean, the, the kind of, the, the, the questions are kind of, I can answer them with the same story almost. Like I um, I had this experience when I, w- when I the first time I went to Japan um, when I was 18, and I was in an izakaya with someone and I asked him about the Ainu, um, which, and I knew nothing basically, but I, I had understood that there was this minority group in Japan called the Ainu. Mm-hmm. I said, what about the Ainu? And he said, oh, don't say that, don't say that. And I thought, oh, I've, I've said a slur inadvertently, like they don't call themselves Ainu anymore or something. Mm-hmm. And later I thought, I, I sort of learned a bit more and I realized like he would just didn't want to talk about it as an issue. Um, and so that got me thinking about well, what does, what do ethnic issues in Japan look like? What does multiculturalism in Japan look like? Because multiculturalism had been a big kind of buzzword in in British political discourse when I was growing up Mm -hmm. um, in the UK. And um, so I was like, okay, well, what does multiculturalism look like in Japan? Um, So I started kind of thinking about uh, this issue of of minorities, what is, what's a minority uh, in Japan? And I often saw Okinawa listed as a, a minority. Um, so they, people would sort of trot out these lists and they say, okay, well, in Japan, there are the following minorities and there are Ainu people and there are Zainichi Koreans and there are Okinawans. And, um, and so I, I sort of approached Okinawan literature thinking about how is it as a minority literature? Um, and that that term is uh, like the idea of a minority is um, is problematic because it puts all the people in that minority right in an automatic relationship of kind of majority minority. Um, so for Okinawans, if, if everything an Okinawan person writes is Okinawan literature kind of automatically, um, then they're always going to be judged on how Okinawan they are or how, um, how they represent Okinawa. And this is a, like a similar uh, dynamic to uh, like what gay authors or um, African-American authors writing in English, for example. So um, there's this question of, well, can it ever be canonical? Can it ever be kind of 
judged on its own terms. Um, and it's a, it's a problematic, it's not like there's a, a sort of easy answer of yes, it's Okinawan literature or no, it's not Okinawan literature. Um, but what I try and do with this term is think about its, its use and think about the way that it's employed. Um, and it, I, but I tend to kind of avoid um, using that term in general for, for my own work and saying I study Okinawan literature um, because I, I tell this to my students, right? If you, um, if we're teaching an introduction to Japanese literature, I tell them, you must not use the term in your papers. You must not use the term Japanese culture without qualifying it in some way. So what I mean is like, if they have a problem, they're looking at a text and they say, oh, what's the reason this, this happened? And they write, well, this is because of Japanese culture. Right. And I don't, I, I tell them not to do this, not because it's not sometimes partially true or not because it's completely inaccurate, um, but just because that question, that answer produces no interesting information. It's not an interesting answer. Like it closes everything down. Everything just becomes um, answered by this idea of, oh, it's well, it's Japanese culture. Um, right. So it's a blanket and, term, almost in the same way, right? So something like exactly. Okinawan literature becomes a blanket term that, right. yeah. So Okinawan literature becomes the answer for everything. And you just get into this sort of circular realm where every text you're looking at, you're looking at, like, does this express Okinawan culture? Um, and it, it just doesn't kind of generate any interesting um, new questions, any interesting new answers. It's just flat. Right. Well, I've, I've been asking you a lot about literature and, and making you speak from the, <laughs> you know, the representative of, of all things literary, uh -huh. but um, you work on other things besides literature. And so I, I wanted to ask you a little bit about another project uh, that you've been working on um, for a few years. And it's, again, connected to your kind of main project, but it, it is sort of a separate thing at the same time, right? And this is your work on the photography um, of Ishikawa Mao. Mm -hmm. And if I remember correctly, um, when you've presented on Ishikawa's work in the past, you've put it in a kind of contrast, right, to other, you know, I think more famous photographers um, who focus a lot on the, you know, the beautiful oceanic scenery of Okinawa. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, in, in preparing for this episode, I, I was reminded of that and, and how already, um, you know, a good portion of, of this podcast, this season has been about discussions of Okinawa, right? <laughs> and, and so there's something about the ocean that just really seems to um, bring out conversations about Okinawa. But here's, here's a case in which your, your work on this photographer is, is, if I understand right, you know, kind of resisting um, the connection to the ocean a little bit. And so I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about that contrast um, and just maybe more broadly, right, how the ocean factors into the kind of politics of visual representation of Okinawa. Yeah. Um, so um, Ishikawa's work the, or at least the, the photographs that I've been focusing on, um, they're these really beautiful, really intimate, um, often candid portraits of um, African-American servicemen mainly, and then Okinawan women and some Japanese women as well. So the African-American servicemen and then hostesses or um, sex workers, um, people who are um, associating with them, their wives, their girlfriends, um, in the 1970s in Japan. Um, and they're really sort of stunning, interesting photographs. And one thing that I was interested in thinking about was how do these photographs exist within the sort of larger, um, like, ecology of Japanese photography. Um, 
like who who's she who's Ishikawa in conversation with mm-hmm. um at least in Japan and she studied with Tomatsu Shomei who's uh, I guess the, the sort of best known um post-war Japanese um art photographer um and Tomatsu had also took a lot of photographs of Okinawa um and he, he takes really beautiful photographs of Okinawa, but it's in collections like Tayono and Pitsu, the pencil of the sun, but they're all very, um, they're all sort of landscapes or um, photographs of people, um, of Okinawan people looking away from the camera. Mm-hmm. Um, so he has lots of figures in landscapes. He has lots of fo- photos of people's back, basically. Um, in contrast with Ishikawa, who has lots of portraits, lots of candid photos. Um, so there is this real, um, and sort of to zoom out, there's this real kind of um, trend in in the, the visual economy of, of Okinawa, where people, um, and I, I, so one thing I, I sort of used to demonstrate this is I say, okay, go to a search engine, go to Google, images and type in Okinawa um, and at least in Japanese the you get a page of beautiful photographs of like blue sky blue sea and then uh, you know white pale yellow sand like everything is like that occasionally a few photos of hibiscus flowers but there's this real kind of sense of Okinawa being this um, tropical paradise and defined by this this blue sea and blue skies um so within that kind of visual landscape um Tomatsu Shome is he's not he's not sort of naively just re- representing this or replicating this he's doing something different but he's still um making it into this exotic space mm-hmm. um and making it into a making Okinawa into a space where um the people aren't facing the camera and looking at you right the people are looking away, they're always in the background or they're always um, uh, sort of not um, not sort of engaging the viewer with their gaze. But in contrast, I argue that Ishikawa's work, um, it's all about the gaze and it's all about being, being looked at by these people. Um, so that is, is kind of not, doesn't seem very oceanic or doesn't seem very like to to um, to involve the ocean, but I I think it it really does in the sense that um, these soldiers are all um, from America. They're often going on to Vietnam or they've just come back from Vietnam. Right. Um, like that, there is this sort of. Um, in this in this space where all these people of different races and of different nationalities are kind of moving around and uh, interacting with each other, there is like the oceanic, like we can't really escape it, but she's just not portraying it in this um, typical kind of touristic way. Yeah, it's really fascinating. Yeah, it's the reality of the Trans-Pacific over the sort of imaginary of the oceanic or something right. like that, right? Right, exactly. So yeah. uh, I don't think we can kind of escape that reality in, uh, when we think about Okinawa or when, when we think about Japan, really. Right. Well, um, this has all been really, really fascinating. And I, I have one last question for you. And it's a, the personal question, which is something I ask everyone um, who is a guest on this, this season of the podcast. And it's uh, how you would characterize your own relationship to the sea, whether you, you grew up with it, if it's something you came to later in life. Just yeah. Um, so I, I grew up in the UK, in the, um, in the south of the UK. And we were about an hour from the, the ocean, I guess, in the town I, I grew up in. But I have a lot of memories of going to see my aunt who lived on the south coast um, in Hastings. And we would go, always go down to the beach and walk along the, 
the promenade and then go down onto the beach and um it's a it's England right so it's stony beaches and you know it's not not nice sand but yeah it's not not um, Okinawan beaches it's definitely not Okinawan beaches um so often you know we were wrapped up warm even in summer but like still the the sort of um like the smell of the sea and the the sense of of um walking past the sea while um the waves were roaring were it sort of left an impression on me I think and then um now I live in in the bay area so I try and get down to the to the water to the bay or um to the the pacific um, when I whenever I can really because it just um I feel like it it sort of resets something in me um so and you're well trained for the the cold I'm well trained the... <laughs> yeah it, it doesn't I, this is this doesn't feel cold to me it's fine <laughs> right right well thank you Daryl this has been a, a pleasure and um I look forward to reading the the full project and all these various satellite projects um as they come out and uh thank you again for taking the time to talk to me today great thanks John Daryl Maud's translation of Shinjo Ikuo's essay, Male Sexuality in the Colony, on Toyokawa Zenichi's Searchlight, is included in the collected volume Beyond Imperial Aesthetics, Theories of Art and Politics in East Asia, which is available via Hong Kong University Press. My thanks again to Daryl Maud for taking the time to speak with me. Nature Mono is recorded and produced by me, John L. Pitt, with co-sponsorship support from the Humanities Center at the University of California, Irvine. Visit our website at naturemono, that's nature, M-O-N-O, dot com, and please subscribe and follow us on social media. Thanks for listening.